0: In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash the It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime that's patreon.com slash the Help us start something special.
1: I do miss being in a newsroom. We have kind of a virtual newsroom in a way at the post. So I do get to spend time with my colleagues over zoom. And I'm doing a project right now on trans teen with two other colleagues. And we, you know, we meet once or twice a week and talk. And like, I feel like we have a little community there where we're bouncing ideas off each other or helping each other. But that's the fun part about being at a newspaper is especially one as amazing as the post, you work with so many people so much smarter than you and you get to learn from them and ask them how to do things like even Right now I think I have like 20 open records requests with the DC government and they are not especially quick to give me that information back, but we have like FOIA experts on staff and I can reach out to them and ask like, well, what would you say to get this record faster? Or like, how do you pressure them? Or how do you appeal this? Like that stuff I don't know on my own, but we have people way smarter than me and they tell me how to do it. And either way, it's very fun.
0: And welcome back to The Writer Files. This is your dutiful host, Kelton Reed, wishing you pages, patience, and perseverance per usual. Award-winning journalist and debut memoirist Casey Parks spoke to me about her lifelong reverence for journalism, the emotional cost of writing a memoir, and her debut, Diary of a Misfit. Casey is a reporter for the Washington Post who covers gender and family issues. She spent a decade at the Oregonian writing about race and LGBTQ plus issues and was a finalist for the Livingston Award. A former Spencer Fellow at Columbia University, Parks was awarded the 2021 J. Anthony Lucas Work in Progress Award for her debut memoir, Diary of a Misfit, a memoir and a mystery. Described as a sweeping journalistic saga about sexuality and gender, family trauma, and the redemptive force of love, Publishers Weekly called the book, a tantalizing blend of personal history and reportage, a brilliantly rendered and complex portrait of Southern life alongside a tender exploration of queer belonging, and a marvel to witness. Casey's articles have appeared in the New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, The Oxford American, ESPN, USA Today, and The Nation. In this file, Casey and I discussed earning $50 per story at the outset of her career to working in the virtual newsroom for The Washington Post. Why that first byline in The New Yorker changes everything. Asking permission to tell the stories of ghosts. Why you can never take no as the final answer and a lot more. Stay calm and write on. And don't forget you can always support this show by heading to writerfiles.fm, where you can also sign up for email updates, get links to merch, and other resources for writers. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click follow to automatically see new interviews in your podcatcher as soon as they're published and drop us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you tune in to help other writers find us. Okay, we are back on The Writer Files, and I'm honored today to be joined by a very special guest. I have award-winning journalist and debut memoirist, Casey Parks, is joining us. Casey, uh, how are you surviving these days?
1: Oh my gosh, I have no idea. It's a lot more emotional than I thought it would be.
0: (laughs) And when you say it, um, you're referring to the birth of your uh, debut memoir.
1: Yes, it took me 13 years to do, so I'm extremely slow. And it just came out today and I, 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 yeah, I'm just super overwhelmed. So I have no idea how to feel.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, I, we speak with a lot of authors about this, this moment when your work is, uh, you know, finally out there in the world. And and, and as you mentioned, it's been a labor of love for, you know, it sounds like over a decade, but I want to, I want to talk all about the journey, um, and the seed of inspiration that, that went into this piece, But yeah, I want to talk about your career as a, as a writer and kind of, you know, I know, um, you've obviously spoken about this at length and written about it at length, but talk about, yeah, kind of how you discovered journalism and all the work that you've done over the years for newspapers, including the fantastic Oregonian. And of course now for the Washington post, but, um, talk a little bit about kind of the path to get here and your superhero origins.
1: Oh gosh. I have wanted to be a journalist probably since I was in the second grade. At the time, my dad was in the Gulf War in Saudi Arabia. And this is the early 90s. So there was no internet or no way to call him. And the only way that we could really keep in touch with him was by reading the newspaper and and clipping out articles about the war. And so my mom would have my brother and I, every single Sunday, sit down and go through the newspaper. And I just grew up with it as this kind of revered thing, like I knew newspapers were special and I really wanted to be a writer. I think pretty much as soon as I could talk or read, like I knew that I wanted to do that somehow, but my family was really poor. And so I didn't think trying to become a novelist, even at even when I was like seven, I was already thinking like, oh, well, novelists don't make much money. So that's not a good career path. I don't know why I thought journalists made a lot of money, but um, <laughs> I I thought it would be a very stable career. I mean, this is the '90s, so it was kind of like the boom days of unlimited budgets, and I don't think I understood all of that. But I just knew that I wanted to be a part of like creating that record and like making something that would go into people's homes all the time. And even after my dad got back from the war, my mom would take us to the library, and I would actually read the Washington Post in the library hmm. some of my favorite journalists are ones that i discovered in like small town libraries in the 90s and pretty much like as soon as i was legally allowed to work i started working at newspapers i remember when i was 15 16 years old i called the local newspaper in alexandria louisiana and begged them every single day to give me a job wow. and eventually i like i worked before school in the circulation department and that's where Basically, people call and scream at you if they didn't get their newspaper. (laughs) And then after school, I would work in the newsroom. And my job was retyping press releases that came in the mail. Like this, again, is like before the Internet. So people were mailing press releases. Yeah, they they would mail them in the mail. And I would get it and then type it up into the computer. And then eventually, the editors let me write one story. It was a profile of Salvation Army Bell Ringers. And it ran on Christmas Day. On the front page, which is really exciting, but the, I remember the editor rewrote my lead, so I was pretty crestfallen. And from there, like I just stuck with it. I worked at a small alternative weekly in Jackson, Mississippi, and I freelanced for a little bit for any basically any outlet that would take me. I was writing stories for $50.75. I think like the biggest one that I sold back then was maybe $250. And then eventually, I got an internship at the Oregonium, and that first year, I made seven eighty an hour, oh and I just stuck with it. And eventually, got a job and stayed there eleven years. And then, the last couple of years have been kind of whirlwind. I went back to freelancing. Thankfully, made more than two hundred fifty dollars a story, <laughs> and now I'm at the Post.
0: Amazing, amazing. Yeah, I mean, it must be interesting working for the post and, uh, still residing in, I, I understand that you're still in Portland, Oregon. Is that correct?
1: I do still live in Portland. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So you're clear you're obviously working remotely. Um, but uh, you know, as a reporter that that's not uncommon, how, how does it feel to be kind of a part of the, that Portland, um, scene and then also writing, you know, about, Bigger issues um, concerning, especially, you know, Washington, D.C. and politics and kind of that kind of piece.
1: Oh gosh, I do not feel a part of any Portland scene. I'm super <laughs> introverted. So I like mostly work and stay home. And my only scene is me and my cat in my office. But, you know, <laughs> a lot of the stories I cover require me to travel all over the country. So yeah. my beat now is gender and family, which is this huge beat that can mean a lot of things. Like I write about transgender people, I write about childcare, I write about abortion. And it's really all over the country. So I was just thinking the other day, like I've been to Texas three times this year, I've been to Alabama, I'm getting ready to go to Cedar Rapids, Iowa. So it almost doesn't matter where I am for that. Like if you are covering like when I was at the Oregonian, it made a ton of sense to be here because I can just run out and get to know people. But because my beat is on is all over the country, it's kind of hard to get to know any one place in that same way. Mm-hmm. So you have to get a lot better at talking on the phone or just monitoring lots of news outlets. And I do miss being in a newsroom. We have kind mm-hmm. of a virtual newsroom in a way at The Post. So I do get to spend time with my colleagues over Zoom And I actually don't do a lot of Zooming, so I don't have the fatigue that everyone else has. But like, (laughs) I'm doing a project right now on Trans Teen with two other colleagues. And we, you know, we meet once or twice a week and talk. And like, I feel like we have a little community there where we're bouncing ideas off each other or helping each other. But that's the fun part about being at a newspaper is especially one as amazing as The Post. You work with so many people so much smarter than you and you get to learn from them and ask them how to do things. Like even right now I think I have like twenty open records requests with the DC government hmm. and they are not especially quick to give me that information back. But we have like FOIA experts on staff and I can reach out to them and ask like, well what would you say to get this record faster? Or like how do you pressure them or how do you appeal this? Like that stuff I don't know on my own, but we have people way smarter than me and they tell me how to do it. And it's, you know, I just get paid to learn all the I mean, they're getting paid to learn how to do journalism or getting paid to learn about other people's lives. And like, either way, it's very fun.
0: Earlier in the show, I mentioned an invaluable resource for writers. Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories based on three decades of writing, failing, and trying again Just head over to Patreon.com slash The for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, Writer's Happy Hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview, and you can upgrade anytime. That's Patreon.com slash The Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and write on. Well, in your own words, you said that you're drawn to messy stories. And I don't know. I want to go back and talk about this 13-year labor of love that I'm holding in my hands right now. Beautiful cover, by the way. Congrats.
1: Yeah, Janet Hansen made that. That's Roy that the, the book is about.
0: So the title is Diary of a Misfit, a mem- a Memoir and a Mystery, which I want to talk about, of course, because that's it's very intriguing. But yeah, take us back to the, to the seed, uh, this inciting incident, as it were, I guess in 2002, that kind of set you on this journey. And then where we pick up, um, in the memoir slash mystery, uh, that just kind of sucks you into this, this, uh, current.
1: Yeah. So, so traveling back to those days when I was getting paid to retype press releases, I went to college and I I kissed a girl for the very first time. And once I did that, I knew just like, that is what I wanted to do. I mean, not like professionally, but like, I knew I didn't want to kiss guys anymore, like after I kissed the one girl, but I was very Christian at the time. And and my parents were as well. And I was very scared that I was going to lose my community and everyone in my life. And in a sense, I did like my pastor kicked me out of church. He prayed that God would take me the idea was that I would like ask forgiveness and then die immediately so I could go to heaven um, My mother pretty much wanted nothing to do with me she told me that looking at me made her want to throw up and so I went home this summer after college to try to prove that I wasn't evil and it it didn't go that well at first like my mom and I kind of got into this big fight on 4th of July and afterward, my grandmother pulled me aside and said, I grew up across the street from a woman who lived as a man. And at the time, I mean, this was 2002. There was no Caitlyn Jenner. Um, I didn't even know any other gay people, let alone trans people. I think the only queer people I probably even knew of were Ellen DeGeneres and Elton John. And so the fact that my grandmother was telling me that there was someone who existed somewhat like me. It just like really blew my mind. And my grandmother told me that she had loved him and that everyone in town loved him. And she she described where she grew up. It was like this very small town in Northern Louisiana, probably about half an hour from the Mississippi border. And that just, did not sound like the louisiana i knew like she made it sound like the xanadu where everyone loved him and they didn't care like what his gender presentation was and she told me that she, he had been really important in her life at one point he would he played country music on his front porch and he was a um, really close friend of hers but she lost touch with him and so she wanted me to go back to her hometown and find out about him and she was basically like you know you want to be a journalist like here's your chance go back to dale high that's where she was from yeah and i want you to learn about this person and i i really wanted to do that i, I wasn't you know i wasn't a good journalist at that point i was 18 years old and i was also pretty scared so it took me a, I i spent quite a few years delaying before i actually like worked up the nerve to go to her town and start Trying to find out about his life.
0: Yeah, and by that time, Roy had passed, right?
1: Yeah, he died in 2006, so he was alive when my grandmother first told me about him. But he was—I didn't actually go and start reporting until 2008, 2009, and at mm. that point, he had died.
0: Mm-hmm. It's a very compelling story, of course—a um, sweeping journalistic saga about sexuality and gender family trauma and the redemptive force of love congrats on the work how are you feeling about the reception now that it's kind of out there in the world is it still kind of a little bit scary
1: (laughs) the giving birth (laughs) metaphor is so funny to me like i have never desired to have a child so i don't think of myself as someone who would give birth but you know it's it's very weird because The whole time I was writing it, I never thought about people reading it. I just tried to to make the best version of a book that I could. And I tried to be as true as possible and and to say at the time, you know, the places where I couldn't capture an entire truth to just be honest about that. But I didn't write it thinking like, oh, a reviewer is going to read this and tell me whether it's good or bad. And then when you write a book, like you turn it in and then nothing happens for a year. Like the copy mm-hmm. editors have to go through it, the production editors, the printers, the designers. And then in that year, that's pretty much all you think about is like, okay, now I can't change it. And everyone gets to say whether it's good or not. And in this case, for me, like I'm used to getting critical feedback. I've worked at newspapers for 20 years and you know, there are some harsh commenters out there. So I can take people telling me that they think something sucks But this is a whole different experience because not only is it does your writing work or not, it's like what do people think of your life and your parents and your grandmother and your relatives and your place where you're from. So it's much more vulnerable. So I basically spent the last year terrified that people are going to hate the book and they're going to hate me and they're going to hate my family. Hmm. And that largely has not happened yet again it just came out today so I guess I'll give people time to hate me but no most of the reviews have been really positive like surprisingly like if I were reviewing it myself I think I could think of like a couple of negatives criticisms and a couple of positives (laughs) and like I was like my Publicists had told me the New York Times was going to review it and their reviews are usually really balanced. You know, they'll say Mm. where things don't work. And so Mm -hmm. I was kind of hoping for like an inside review that was like half positive, half critical. And the piece that, that did come out, first of all, ran on the cover, which I was really, I mean, I just didn't even know to dream for that. And then I would say it was overwhelmingly positive and just like a really beautiful review not because of Mm. me but because the author michelle hart just really painted a a great theme and like brought to the review some of her own experiences and um it's amazing to see how people interact with the book and like what it makes them think of in their own lives
0: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i agree and i thought what michelle hart said was Really apropos, but um, I think she said, and I'll quote, most moving is Park's depiction of a queer lineage, her assertion of an ancestry of outcasts, a tapestry of fellow misfits into which the marginalized will always for better or worse fit. Ariel Levy, uh, your peer, had had some very nice things to say about it. She's been on this show before.
1: She is not my peer. She is way better than I am. But thank (laughs) you. Thank you for uh, implying that she is.
0: She called the book engrossing. And um, yeah, I mean, emotional, familial, spiritual, and perhaps above all else, regional. The the Louisiana she can't leave behind. And one mysterious inhabitant in particular haunt her early adulthood as she grapples with what it means to be a daughter, a writer, an outlier, and in her own way, a believer. I mean, so many good blurbs here, and again, congrats on the work. It's got to feel good, and and of course, the New York Times cover story was really cool to see. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll link to it. Of course, I'll link to the book. I'll link to your home base there, um, and you're on the Socialist as well. But yeah, congrats. How? So, is there was there some part of like getting that New York Times book review cover like super legitimizing? Like, because I know you've talked about you know, kind of kind of doing these. Thankless jobs in journalism, but now I mean that's got to feel really good, and and I bet.
1: Well, unfortunately, most people in my family uh, have died, so they are not around to see it, which does feel really bittersweet. I mean, mm-hmm. the day that I found out it was going to be on the cover, I th- it was the first thing that really made me cry. I've been trying through this whole process not to think about my mother. She's a big part of the book, but she died four years ago, and. When I found out about that, there was definitely a huge ringing inside me that thought, like, oh, I got to tell my mom I made the front of the New York Times, and I can't. And I also know, like, if she were still alive, I probably wouldn't have written the book this way. Hmm. So it's it's a mixed bag, I think. But um, yeah, you know, like I wonder what she would think about me getting to do readings, and if she'd be listening to this interview, if she'd have something to say about the haircut I got last week to have all the pictures of the <laughs> outfits I wore, or if she liked the way I phrased things or if she think I was fair. Hmm. Um, I think even before this, like I think my family thought that my work was legitimate. Mm-hmm. I have before my mom died. I sold my very first story to the New Yorker and it, had, it didn't run before she died, but she knew that it was in the works. And for me, like that was the pinnacle of everything I ever hoped to achieve in life. It was like my dream publication. And mm-hmm. um, I wish she could know that I have a job at the post. Cause like I said, she took me to the library to read it as a kid. Mm-hmm. And she knew how much I worship Katherine Boo and David Finkel and Ann Hall. And I think she'd be excited to know that I get to kind of follow in their footsteps again, like they're so much more talented than I could ever be. But I think, you know, she set me on this path and my mom never got to go to college and she wasn't a journalist herself, but she was an amazing storyteller. And she knew how to get me access to an education, even if she didn't, you know, wasn't providing it herself, but she knew to take me to the newspaper. I me mean, to the library, and she knew I remember one year she somehow found out a way to find all the Pulitzer winning articles, and she printed them all mm. off for me so I could wow. read them and diagram them and yeah, I mean I, I wish that that she could see how all of that paid off for me
0: yeah, well, my condolences, and of course, um I know that she would be very proud and, and excited for you um and uh yeah it's got to be again yeah as you put it bittersweet but um yeah congrats on the work because it really is something to behold um and you know i thought interesting also the new york times book review had compared it to s town which of course is an incredibly uh, you know it's a very heartfelt story i understand that you had at one point kind of been thinking about to, you know trying out for this american life but how do you feel about that comparison?
1: Well, I do think S-Town is really compelling in some senses. I think they're different because Brian Reed is not from that place and he wasn't trying yeah. to work out anything personal in his own life when he came to it. I think it was an interesting story to to him. And he obviously did developed a connection with the source at the center of that piece. But, you know, the, the source in S-Town at some point told Brian that he didn't want to be out as queer and hmm. Brian thought about that and decided because he was dead that it was okay but i personally would have struggled with that it's i struggled as i reported my own book with knowing whether this is something roy would have wanted me to do hmm. and it, even at one time i remember i was in the graveyard looking at his tombstone and i found the a tombstone for the this woman who raised him and i got bitten by a fire ant and i'm allergic to fire ants and my arm swelled up and i was like oh "Oh, god no like this is roy's ghost telling me he doesn't want me to do this (laughs) and that's partially why it took me so long to do it because i wanted i guess i wanted permission before i did it um i don't think as a journalist that everyone has to have their life revealed i mean i i believe in consent where it's possible or you know Mm -hmm. i Unless you're talking about politicians, then they're fair game. But um, with this, like, I did eventually find things that Roy wrote that led me to believe that he wanted people to remember him. Like, I found a poem that he wrote where he said no one was ever going to remember him or miss him. And he seemed to crave a legacy. Like, he wanted, he wrote poems and songs and he wanted people to see and hear them. And he wanted, people to know what his life was like. So I ultimately came around to feeling like it was a, like it was a good thing to do this project and share his story, but it it took a long time for me to feel comfortable doing that.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, what is next for you? I know you're working hard. You're probably juggling a lot of things. Are you thinking about, I mean, you've probably had quite a bit of time to think about this, but are you thinking about writing more nonfiction like, uh, a book or a fiction or what's in your future?
1: Oh, I'm reveling in just having a day job right now. <laughs> I'm actually working today. So, um, I just, okay. yeah, I'm just working on being good at my job that I have now. I mean, <laughs> taking 13 years on a project is very emotionally taxing. Um, yeah. And, you know, I didn't ever actually esteem to write a book. I just became obsessed with this story and wanted to make it happen however I could. But otherwise, like, I love the role that newspapers and magazines play in just, like, illustrating a moment, illuminating, like, what a policy means for real people. And I'm excited to have my job at The Post where I get to do that, where, you know, as we have a lot of laws passed to... Restrict rights for trans people. Like, I get to go travel around the country and write about what that feels like for the people impacted by the laws. I, you know, we're in an insane childcare crisis across the country, and I get to go down to Texas or over to DC and write what it's like to be a childcare worker right now. And those are the fun parts about journalism to me, just like meeting people regular people and writing about their lives. And it doesn't have to be a whole book for me. Like I get, you know, whether it's 750 words or 130,000, like the fun part to me is just doing the interviewing and watching people's lives. So I'm just, you know, going where the news takes me right now.
0: (laughs) Very cool. Well, thank you for your time, your words, your wisdom. Um, If we could leave fellow scribes with just one kind of piece of advice on how to kind of persevere, how to, how to keep going through the tough times or even the good times, just how to keep keep writing.
1: I think the thing that I kept telling myself over the years, because I got rejected for grants tons of times on this project, Um, I had a lot of people tell me no. The thing that I kept telling myself was, you think this is interesting. And if you think it's interesting, other people will. And you just have to trust your own taste. Like, you know what a good story is. And if you believe this, and you have not stopped being interested in it for five, seven, nine, eleven 11 years, like, someone else out there is going to be interested. And, you know, sometimes I was telling myself that and not quite believing it. But I think that it it turned out to be true. And yeah, sometimes, you know, you change as a writer, and the story changes. And sometimes you just have to wait till everything lines up to be right. Like, An initial no is not a no forever. I mean, there are people in my book who told me no for 10 years before they told me yes. So just Hmm. never take no as like a final answer. Just like sometimes you got to give things space and time to develop or people to change their minds. And if it matters to you and it feels worth all the pain and agony, because there's a lot of pain and agony, then just keep at it.
0: A great pearl of wisdom. Thank you so much, Casey Parks. The book is Diary of a Misfit your home base there is caseyparks.com. I will drop a link to that, the book. You're on Twitter. Anywhere else you want to connect with listeners?
1: Uh, well, I did start an Instagram. It's caseyparkswrites, and I'm posting a bunch of pictures and videos from the 13 years. So you can see like oh, what cool. some of the residents looked and sounded like. You can see Roy. You can see his writings. You could see me if you really want that. Uh, you can see my mom, my grandma. Um, yeah, I've got eight terabytes of footage. So
0: lots <laughs> wow. to roll out. <laughs> Very cool. All right. Well, we'll look for those. We appreciate you and um keep trucking there. Uh, enjoy your book tour and we'll hopefully we'll catch up with you in the future.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thanks so much for joining us for this file. And if you're a fan of the show, simply head over to writerfiles.fm for more. That's writerfiles.fm.